Okay, great. Okay. We are now <laughs> recording burp. with the big burp. I want to be as cool as Tierra Whack when in that song, the like engineer sneezed and she said, no, keep that. <laughs> From Neon Hum, this is Dirt Cheap. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. And we're reading Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolf and Lester Fuller. Amanda, do you remember where we were in Murder in the Glass Room? This was chapter 12, which we read with uh, Jamie and Caitlin, uh, our guests from last week. Uh, so they're they're at Muriel's place. Yes. So Muriel suggested to Phil that he go visit uh, Edna's father, yes. which is where we're headed. Chapter 13. The La Ferenze courtyard was dark and silent. In the moonlight, I made out the old bulb hanging dark and useless from a frayed wire at the entrance like a decayed fruit on an autumn tree. So he's going back to the place where he got the $50 apartment. Yes, the $50 apartment. And Uh, this is where, to be clear, this is where Edna's father has been living. So, So he... Got a place. He moved in with Edna's dad. But did not know. I wasn't afraid of cops. They just couldn't post every place I'd been. If they had, they wouldn't have had any left over to do the normal jobs of a city police force, like beating up drunks, for instance. I slipped noiselessly into the yard, half groping my way to Bungalow E. When I got there, I stood still for a minute, straining my ears for sound. Heavy curtains were drawn across the windows of the bungalow, but off in the corner of one of them, there was a slight glow, as if a light were burning behind it. I couldn't be sure. I went to the front door and knocked. There was no answer. I knocked again, louder this time. Then I pressed my ear against the door and listened. No sound. I was about to bang the door again when I realized that the clamor might wake the neighbors. For the same reason, I couldn't call the old man's name out loud. After a second of not knowing what to do, I walked around to the side of the house and tapped against the glass with my fingernails, then with my knuckles. The curtains parted and I saw him, a little gink, about five feet three, but he was bent over and looked smaller. What's a gink? Yes, thank you. Luckily, Should I even be saying that word? What is it? Oh, God. Luckily, non-derogatory. Oh. <laughs> I know. I also I had exactly the same reaction. So fucking it just means a foolish. It just means a foolish or contemptible person. <laughs> yeah, that one had me worried, too. <laughs> but don't worry. It's funny. It's like, yeah, it's like non-derogatory, but I definitely would not go around. I would not add this to my vocabulary. Yeah, I'm not going to just start making fetch happen with with gang. Oh, boy. His face was thin and very lined. Little eyes peered at me brightly but suspiciously from under scraggly eyebrows. His long, gray, unkempt mustache made him look the way Marshall Montgomery might look if he lived to be a hundred. I saw his lips move. I couldn't hear the words, but the meaning was easy to read. I motioned that I wanted to see him. He hesitated a full minute. Then he gestured in the direction of the door and let the curtains drop back together. I moved back to the front of the building, and after a moment, I heard a key grating in the lock. Then the door opened to crack, and the old man said, What do you want? It was a high, rasping whisper. Let me in, I said. What? In, I repeated. I want to talk to you. I put my face right against the opening so that I spoke practically in his ear. What business you got with me? He asked. I'll tell you inside, I said, and pushed gently against the door. It gave slightly and then held. I looked down and saw that he had put on the chain protector before he'd opened it. No, you don't, he said. First, tell me your business this hour of the night. Look, Mr. Martin, I said, it's important. What's your business? I hesitated. Then I said, I want to talk about Edna. Whoa. 
he finally just like used his words. There was <laughs> Yeah, at first his first instinct was I I'm am just gonna going to push through. Right. I'm just gonna barge into this old man's house. And he was foiled by the little dangly chain <laughs> on the door. Yeah. Poor Shelly, if she had had the dangly chain. If only she had the dangly chain on. <laughs> I hesitated. Then I said, I want to talk about Edna. Edna? Yes. His eyes searched my face for a long time. Then he fumbled with the chain and let me in. I followed him into the lighted room. For the first time, I noticed what he was wearing. All he had on was a crumpled pair of pants and over it a canvas carpenter's apron. In his right hand, he held a wooden mallet and a gleaming sharp chisel. Set yourself there, the old man said, pointing with his hammer to a wooden rocker. I sat down and looked around the room while the old man walked out, mumbling, Be right back. It was a sad-looking room. There was a wooden-legged canvas cot over against the wall with bedding on it. There were two wooden chairs and the wooden rocker I was sitting on. There was a cheap old unpainted wooden kitchen table, the top covered with newspaper on which was spread the biggest array of chisels and other cutting tools I had ever seen together in one place. Then there was a small wooden footstool right under the lamp and next to it was a long wooden box. I stared at the box for a long time before I realized it was a coffin. So, interestingly, there's a coffin on the table. Yeah, he's just got like a pine box. How big is this coffin, right? Because like, when I think of the size of a coffin, usually I think bigger than a kitchen table. I mean, yeah, I guess it depends on how short this man is. This man is, or Edna is, or whoever he's buying the coffin for. Getting up from my rocker, I went over to the coffin and bent down. There were wood shavings all over the bare floor. I soon saw why. The old man had drawn designs over every square inch of coffin surface, and part of it was already engraved. I was struck by one group of figures, carved delicately at the head. It showed a dainty-legged unicorn, its horn lowered before it, charging a fruit-laden tree. Shrinking against the trunk was the figure of a nude woman. It was Eve, all right, but there was no sign of Adam, only the tree with the fruit hanging from the branches and the unicorn charging in to gore her. Whoa. It's a weird, it's a weird image. What is happening? Does that happen in the Bible? <laughs> that doesn't sound like a Bible. How many unicorns are in the Bible? Yeah, A. We're, neither of us are I, bi- like Bible people. No. I also don't remember Eve having like a bloody ending to her life. No. Doesn't she like live to be a million? They all live to be like a million in the Bible. They're like I lived, they lived for like 10,000 years and they begat like four billion children. <laughs> Something like that, yes. Like if you were like one of the Bible OGs, like you lived a long time. I don't remember Eve. I feel like I would remember if Eve was like gored to death. You know, by, and especially if it was by a unicorn, because it's a it's a yeah. sick death. <laughs> the old man returned to the room, licking his lips. I looked up as he entered, but I didn't rise. He came over and stooped over me. I could smell fresh beer on his breath. What's this? I asked. Home, he said. What? Just what I said. Home. He grinned at me. It was a weird grin coming through those ancient dried lips and through the gaps in his gums where teeth had once been. You think I'm crazy, he said. It was more of a statement than a question. No, I said quickly. Why should I? Yeah, you think I'm crazy, he repeated, and he laughed. (laughs) But then his face uncreased. Everybody thinks I'm crazy, he said. Everybody who knows about this all, that's why I keep it to myself. A good idea, I said. You think I'm crazy too, mister, but I ain't. I'm the sanest man in this part of the country. Everything I learned in my life is on my side, especially logic. I nodded. I didn't want to rile him. Yes, mister, especially logic. 
I've lived 72 years and I know about life and especially about logic. This here coffin's the most logical work I ever done. The most logical idea I ever thought up. Oh, it's a coffin, I said. I was relieved to hear him call it that. Don't try to fool me, mister. You knew all along it was a coffin. I didn't have to tell you that. Mind you, though, I'm not saying that's all it is. What else is it? I asked timidly. The old man sat down on the wooden footstool next to the thing and faced me. May seem queer to a young feller like you, me sitting here in the middle of the night, carving this here coffin. I tried to mumble something about it not being queer at all, about it being the most natural occupation in the world, but the old man cut me short. You ain't fooling nobody, mister, he said, least of all me. I know what you're thinking. You're entitled to your thoughts. I always said a man's entitled to his thoughts. Thoughts never harmed anybody. Uh, yeah, he is. He is making this coffin. Why? Here's the weird thing, though. Like, why is it weird? Like, I don't know. Like, he's an old guy, like, making a coffin. Like, I don't feel like he should have to justify himself to this stranger. You know, like, build your coffin. Like, live your dream. I guess the way I'm thinking about it now is, like, Phil's the one who insisted on coming in. Yeah. (laughs) So... Now he's trapped, and I'm kind of into that. I kind of feel like Phil is being out-weirded right now. Yes. And so he's starting to, like, lose his grip on the situation. Oh, definitely. And uh, that's funny. Uh, (laughs) And his dad is now driving, and we don't know where he's going. All I did was listen. This here coffin, he continued, I want you to understand what it is and why I'm working on it. It makes me happy, that's why. That's a good reason, isn't it? Best reason in the world, I said. Look at me, I'm 72 years old, come next birthday. Born July 14th, 1874, outside of Salt County, Wisconsin. 40 years ago, I left and came out here to LA and set up in business. He's going into detail. This feels like he had this TED Talk prepared. I just want to point out that, like, this is old. Like, old people in old books are, like, really old. Yeah, because, like, they're literally pickled inside. Right. It's like a miracle that they made it past 60. So it's, like, it's disconcerting, I'm sure. But also, whenever I hear... Like, I know this book was written in the 1940s, but, like, this guy was born... July 14th, 1874. Yeah, I mean, he was born during Reconstruction. <laughs> right. Like, it's, it's it's wild to even imagine. It's it's weird to read a book where somebody is this old. <laughs> right? It is. It is. You're just like, wow, that was a long time ago. Because like, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like that was old... 150 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like an old person, like, you know, born in the 30s. <laughs> it's like, sure, sure, sure. I get that. But like, oh, no, 1874. This person's really old. 40 years ago, I left and came out here to L.A. and set up business. Carpenter in and wood carving thrown in. Did well for a while, too, because even though there were plenty of carpenters, not many of them could throw in the wood carbon. Had my own help? Good boys, too. Mind you, I never took advantage of them. Always paid them what they earned and a bit more. In fact, I never knowingly took advantage of a living human being. But that went to smash after a while when they started turning out this modern machine furniture. This terrible stuff he added, pointing to the two wooden chairs. Not pretty to look at, not comfortable to sit in, made of the cheapest wood, and not a bit of real handiwork in them. That's what did me in. You know, it's funny, all this talk about furniture, you would think that Phil would actually form a bond with him. Yes. Right? Like they I have something very that. they have something very important in common with each other. They could talk about wood grain and varnishes <laughs> and you know, metal fixtures and, you know. After that, all I did was work for a living. Odd jobs, good ones at first, not so good ones later, bad ones as time went on, and I wasn't getting no younger. But I had one idea all the time, one ambition. When I first got here and married, my wife and me lived back of the business. 
Then, when the business went, I rented a house and we lived in it. When she had her first baby, I promised my wife and myself I was going to buy us a house. A house all our own. To own and to live in. Seems like suddenly I knew that was what I'd always wanted. A house of my own. Not such an uncommon want, is it? I saved for it. Whenever I had an extra penny that wasn't needed for food or something else, I put it away for the house. One time I had almost $500 in a chunk. But then she died. My wife, I mean. And the funeral and everything used it up. But I didn't give up. I kept working. And I kept saving. But it wasn't any use. Time after time, I was almost there. Put down a deposit several times. And time after time, I needed it for something else. Something for life or death. He paused, picked up a small piece of wood and a knife, and began to whittle. Well, son, when I got to be 70, with no kin to speak of, and no house, I near to give up. Near to it, very near to it. But I didn't. I reckoned it all out one night, and this is the result. He made a vague gesture towards the coffin. The coffin? I asked. Looks like it to you, don't it? Well. I guess it is a coffin, looking at it one way. When a boy's your age, that's all it is. But I think different about it. That's why I'm making it careful. Built it up myself from nothing. Bought the wood, lined it with copper, then satin, and lamb's wool. I'm carving everything on it I've learned in 72 years of living. That's my house, son. That's my life's ambition sitting there. That's my home of my own. Oh my God. That is devastating and also entirely what the majority of Americans are living right now. I was literally going to say, this is the millennial horror story. The couple saved and saved as much as they could. Yeah. (laughs) But but, But but then there was a recession. Right. But then there was an earthquake. (laughs) But then there was a plague. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was a coup. (laughs) And then another plague. That's literally what what we are living through right now. Uh, Pretty intense. What's the statistic? Most people don't have like $500 for an emergency or something. Yeah, like a $500 emergency would like put you on the street basically yeah, that's most yeah. pe- that's most people yeah and that's yeah that's where we're at as a country so yeah we've we've come a long way since 1945 45. we'll be right back hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I must have blinked. I know that I didn't say anything. I couldn't say anything. The old man said, You feel all right, mister? Yes, I said. We sat there for a long while, both of us staring at the coffin. You have any more beer? I asked finally. Who told you I had beer? I smelled it when you came in. He hesitated. Beer costs money. I pulled out a dollar bill and laid it on the coffin next to him. He picked it up scrutinized it closely, and stuffed it into his apron pocket. Then he waddled off. When he returned from the kitchen, he carried several bottles. He put them down on the floor and handed me an opener and 85 cents change. 
help yourself, he grumbled. I don't like to make you pay for common hospitality, mister, but beer costs money. Sure, I know. Beer was cheap back then. I, I mean, it was water. It was like what most people drank like all day. Yeah. <laughs> for a while there. Yeah, it's horrible. Horrible it was, life. Yeah, you couldn't have water. All the water is gross. Yeah. Full of b- bugs and poop or whatever. And no video games. <laughs> there so are you, no video games. So no drank, internet. So you drank, got drunk, and then threw beer bottles at each other for fun. You got drunk enough to hallucinate so that you could start punching things. <laughs> He took a long gulp from his bottle, and I did the same. I thought I'd given him enough time. What about Edna, Mr. Martin? I said. Edna? His face twisted into a contemptuous grimace, and he spat. Could have had my house long ago, but for her. His hand was shaking with such agitation that the beer started to foam and spill over the neck of the bottle. She took money from you? He was so upset that he couldn't answer for a moment. But when he did, it came out like soda from a siphon. Money and everything else, he said. But money was the least part of it. If I'd been a smarter man, I'd have gouged her eyes out with a chisel when she was 12 years old. And her tongue, too. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Her father. This is her father. This is her father. How horrible. When she was 12? How horrible. What could no she... No child could be bad enough no. for this. It's insane. It's insane. I mean, you would assume he would have some compassion, even if they had a major falling out. It's his blood. Yeah, it's his own daughter. She made the right call, definitely, it seems, leaving this household behind, you know. Yeah. Not why, I mean, you can understand why she wasn't like, Phil, you have to meet my father. Right. (laughs) You're going to love him, and it's going to be great spending time with him, you know. What did she do to you? I asked. To me? Nothing worse than she did to everybody else. She killed her mother. Killed her? As good as killed her. How? He wasn't listening to me. Esther would have been alive if the baby hadn't come. Even before she was alive, Edna raised a rumpus. In the womb, even. The midwife said never in her life did she see a baby so set on not coming out. Four days in labor she was. Then when it came, she didn't have the strength at all to fight off the hemorrhage. None of the others came that hard. I should have drowned her when she was little. I should have put ground glass in her baby bottle. Of all the ways that you would kill anybody, let alone a child, it's like the- Glass? Like- Oh, God. It's just- What? It's just disgusting. It's needlessly disgusting. and, And cruel and, you know, torturous. I took another swig of beer to hide my excitement. So yeah, that that's Phil's response to uh, to uh, I should have put ground glass in her baby bottle. This is so much worse than I could have even imagined. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting to see that like his, her father is like maybe the maybe he's the only other person that he could be like. Yeah, we're on the same level. Right. Two paternalistic dudes who wanted the best for a woman that we never loved or cared about, but she <laughs> didn't do what we wanted them to do, so we did violence on them a lot. Um, like I just didn't expect him to like be that into it. Yeah, I thought it, he would. I thought him, like, he t- would shake him and be like, "What did you do to Edna to make her like this or something like that?" Right. Yeah. But no. That's not even what's happening here. No, he like pulls out a football and spikes it in the middle of the room and does a touchdown dance. The old man sat there, blindly staring at the gnarled vein network of his hand. His shoulders hunched forward, as if he had only enough strength left in his body to keep himself from falling off the chair. Then I put the bottle down. A curious sensation came over me. I had the feeling that I was inside a glass dome, a dome like the one that covered the stuffed owl on the mantle above Rosa's fireplace. Old man Martin sat there, a doll examining his hands. My father-in-law sat there, 
but I couldn't reach him. I couldn't even talk to him. I began to worry about how air could get inside, how little oxygen was needed to sustain life. What difference did that make, anyhow? I was going to choke to death eventually, no matter what. Inexplicably, the illusion was shattered. Unexpectedly and suddenly, I became conscious of a noise. I jumped up, startled. The loud clatter came from outside the house. What? Uh, what? Do, do, do you understand what's happening? No. I also don't fully understand what's happening. What is he imagining? He's imagining himself in a glass dome of some kind. It, he's, he's having some kind of psychic breakdown. Yeah, like he's, he's trapped in, you know, in a thing and is just going to slowly die <laughs> and lose, lose oxygen. I don't know why he's thinking about that. Uh, Your guess is as good as mine. But he's like really experiencing symptoms, it feels like. Like it's not just like an illusion. Like he really is like feeling it, it feels like. I, but I don't know. I just literally have no idea. I mean, we'll come to something later that might be the explanation. Okay. But I'm not 100% convinced that it is. Okay. So. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what he's imagining, but. Or I'm, why he's imagining it. Right. Um, I mean, he hasn't really been sleeping or eating. This is true. Food uh, or drinking water. So, I mean. <laughs> yes. It could be a comp. It could just be that he is not, like, he is just living too hard. Yeah. And uh, that may be that may be something it's starting to dissociate or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I jumped up, startled. The loud clatter came from outside the house. Old man Martin came to life. He smiled weakly and said, "Calm down, Mister. That's nobody. Nobody but the cats getting at the garbage pails." The cats? I said. Yep. Do it every night. I sat down again, relieved. My father-in-law looked at me sharply. You're no police feller, he said. No police feller could have had that look on his face like you had when you heard the noise outside. Appears to me like you're on the opposite side of the fence. You're running from the police, mister. I got up wearily. I had to be ready for anything. Sit down, mister, he smiled. I'm on your side. Anybody put Edna out of this world for good and all, I'm on his side. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, he suspects that uh, that this is somebody who killed Edna and is like, you're my best friend. <laughs> you're very welcome in this house for killing my daughter. <laughs> this is bizarre. This is so bizarre. I didn't say a word. The fellow that did that, he ought to get a medal for doing the world a good deed. The glass dome feeling was coming back again. You're Norris, he said suddenly. You're Phil Norris, ain't you? The one who killed her. He started to say something, but he stopped me with, I sized you up right, young feller. You loved her too, didn't you? She hurt you too, the way she hurt everything and everybody she knew. There's nothing Edna could have ever done. No, to deserve. <laughs> to warrant any of this. This book is such a like incredible window into like white American male grievances. Yes. That I wasn't expecting. It's definitely a checklist. It's become the entire <laughs> thing. Yeah, this is what the this is what the book is about. I mean, it's not driven by a murder. It's driven by these grievances. And that's and in a way. In a weird way, that's a credit to its writing. <laughs> I couldn't think clearly at all. Had he killed his own daughter? I didn't know. And suddenly, I didn't care. I realized that the old man was speaking to me. What? I asked. Want another beer? I guess I nodded because he started for the kitchen. Wait a minute. I yelled. Here's your 15 cents. He shook his head reproachfully. Can't charge kinfolk, he said. Then he went out. He was taking an awful long time in getting back. I listened for the rattle of bottles, for the slam of the icebox door, 
but all I heard was a rhythmically clicking sound. It was the telephone dial. The old man was calling somebody. I raced into the other room. When he saw me, he tried to complete the call, but I was too fast for him. I grabbed his wrist and forced the phone call on the cradle. Who are you calling? I demanded. His lower lip began to tremble, but no sound came out from him. Who are you calling? I twisted his arm. The wrist felt as fragile as the stem of a champagne glass. I could have broken it without any effort. <laughs> Phil was like the kind of kid who probably tortured little animals, right? Like, <laughs> just, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, remember when he did this to the old lady? When he, like, put the old lady in a headlock? Like, what is it with Phil and, like, old people that <laughs> he, like, wants to just, like, get up in their business <laughs> physically? <laughs> His legs went slack. Only my hold on his arm kept him from falling to the floor. Then he began to cry. It was more like a keening than a man's weeping. The police, he sobbed. I thought you were glad that Edna's dead. I deserve a medal, don't I? I loved her, he wept. My own daughter, may God forgive me. I could understand that. Edna worked on you that way. She took you and lacerated your guts and made you like it. Phil's explanation for why Edna's father loves her is like oh yeah Edna was she manipulated <laughs> yeah because yeah, she manipulated you <laughs> into loving him but this is this is the father her killer was someone who hadn't been infected that way he was someone who loathed her with double distilled vehemence Oliver Martin wasn't the man. True enough, since I already was the odds-on favorite for the San Quentin gas chamber. If he'd been the killer, it would have been smart of him to put me in the police butterfly net. Yet I didn't think he was that smart. And unless he was a better actor than I gave him credit for, this old man with tears on his cheeks was no daughter killer. I let go his arm and he sank softly to the floor. Then I took the telephone between my hands and jerked the cord out of the box by its roots. I wouldn't turn on you, son, my father-in-law wailed. Not anymore, I wouldn't. I couldn't be sure that he was telling the truth. I mean, yeah, because he literally, he literally tried to do it. Literally tried to call the cops on him after saying that he wasn't going to do it. So, yeah, I, I think you could make a safe bet that, that he may not be telling the truth in this moment. Yeah. <laughs> Detective Norris. We'll be right back. Straining to see through the darkness, I edged slowly away from Bungalow E. Once out in the street again, I began to run. At any moment, I expected to hear old man Martin's cry behind me, arousing the pack to the chase. I was afraid of the noise my heels were making when I struck the cement. I had a vague idea that I was heading west, but I wasn't sure. The sounds of my footbeats jabbed up into my brain. I stood still, listening, but I heard them yet, echoing up and down the empty streets. I started to trot, but they were still distinct. I ran as fast as I could, making the stops rapid and short, but they still detonated singingly. The last hours had been a vaporous fantasy, like living in a land which couldn't possibly exist. I'd been down to my last hold on sanity when I'd left Muriel. I'd been grasping desperately at the thin threads of reality even then. Going to see Martin hadn't really been my idea. I'd floated towards him on the impetus of what Muriel had said. <laughs> yeah, he, he's like he's blaming back, Muriel. For... He's backtracking on what he just did. Yeah. Then I realized that I was running no longer. I was staggering, reeling along the sidewalk like a drunk. I tried to force myself to walk a straight line, but I couldn't. I stopped and stood there, swaying and shaking. I tried to hold perfectly still, but my muscles seemed to have a will of their own. I was a stranger to them, and all I could do was watch their funny convulsions. I couldn't even raise my hand to my face to wipe off the sweat of a fever chill. Suddenly, a feeling of brittleness came over me, 
I felt that if I didn't stop shaking, if anything in me moved again, I'd shatter like glass. I guess it was my terror of disintegrating. All life function in me stopped for a minute, but the will to breathe persisted. No matter how strongly my brain fought against it, it prevailed, and the air came out of my lungs. <sighs> I waited fearfully for the crash. Nothing happened. I inhaled, tentatively, cautiously. I didn't burst. I didn't even crack. It's like he's just going, I'm literally like imagining like wacky inflatable tube uh, guy at a car dealership and then <laughs> suddenly stopping and becoming catatonic. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine and looking just breathing. at him? Yeah, you're as an imagine, onlooker. Yeah, it would be pretty crazy to look at this guy. <laughs> like, what is happening to him? What is he doing? You, it's it, these pages are baffling to me. Like, yeah, I I don't understand what is happening to Phil in this moment. Yeah, this is like this is such baffling writing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Great work, Edward <laughs> Lester, Lester Fuller. <laughs> Our two best friends. <laughs> a late homecomer went by, turning to look at me curiously. I about faced to stare him down. He scurried up a path and into a house, slamming the door hastily behind him. I realized that the spell was over. I had moved, completely moved, and I was still whole. I was made of elastic tissue and hard bone once more. I started to walk again. Once the crazy dream was gone, a reaction set in. I felt light, buoyant. My clothes made no contact with my skin. I felt naked and deliciously cool. I remembered an incident that had occurred years before. I had gone swimming in a swift, muddy stream just outside a sawmill. The other kids had been content to splash around in the pools near the banks, but I was a strong swimmer and more adventurous. It struck out for the opposite shore. In midstream, the vortex of the current had caught me in its churning grip. I remembered how my arms had flailed, how my legs had churned. Soon I was gasping for breath, swallowing mouthfuls of the bitter-tasting flood water. I tried to swim back to the bank, but my strength and wind had given out. I'd gone under. When I'd come to, I was lying on my belly, with two of the gang bouncing up and down on my back. I wasn't fully conscious, but I clearly heard one of the kids say, Stupid bastard, doesn't know when he's licked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some know. things never change. Um, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that feels like a Phil Norris memory. Yeah, I mean, at least we got, like, a memory. Like, it's been, like, several chapters since we've had, like, a memory. <laughs> Yeah, I of know. Like what Phil's life was like before the events of this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he mostly thought about having sex with Rosa. Rosa. And got and into trouble at the old sawmill. Yeah, golden chromium elevators. <laughs> Suddenly, I knew what I had to do. I knew it at last. If I didn't do it, I'd be a dead pigeon. The chances were I'd be a dead pigeon anyway. <laughs> dead pigeon, something you'd say in those days. I guess so. I, I don't was know. a dead pigeon. I don't know. There's a lot of attempts at writing, <laughs> at like <laughs> describing things. So, do you think that they invented that phrase wholesale? Yeah, I've never like, heard it before. I'm a dead pigeon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, they just just were like, this is gonna catch on. <laughs> I started to run again. I didn't know where I was, but I knew what I had to do. I reeled around street corners with no reason in mind. It just happened to be there. I was looking for a cop. It was all over. I was out on my feet and I knew it. But there was no referee to throw the towel in for me. I had to do it for myself. I had to turn myself in. That was the only way. As I ran, I kept thinking, God damn this town. Whoever saw a cop on the streets of Los Angeles in the middle of the night? Whoever could get a hold of a cop when you needed him. My heart pounded. My head throbbed. I couldn't see the crack in the pavement. My foot caught and I fell, tearing the flesh where my face scraped the concrete. I mean, has he made any progress with this mystery? 
Like, I'm looking, I'm thinking about it. Like, Muriel was supposed to be, like, the big, was supposed to be, like, or at least he thought it was, like, a big linchpin for him. I mean, he learned a lot of information, but nothing, no, no, nothing he has done so yeah. far has exonerated him. It has only made him more suspicious. Yeah, absolutely. And it just adds more counts of whatever crimes he's already doing. I feel like all he is doing, you know how in Clue, like, you, like... You go and you, like, say, like, oh, okay, I know it's not the knife because of this, this, and this, mm -hmm. right? I feel like that's, like, all he's doing here is yeah. he's just, but without evidence. So it's, like, I know it wasn't the old man because he cried. And I know it's not Muriel because she cried. And I know it's not the counter lady because she cried. And it's just, like, going through, it's, like, oh, some all these people cried. So, therefore, they're not guilty of murdering yeah, my, my ex-wife. It's a really funny <laughs> Assumptions like, <laughs> oh, it's you can't if you murdered someone, you can't cry about it later. <laughs> I think I lay there for a minute, panting and moaning. I know a funny idea came into my head. I saw myself, clean and neat, and slacks and brown and white shoes, coming down a shiny, cool flight of marble stairs. The house was beautiful, all white with brightly patterned chintz draperies and slip covers to match. I walked out into the garden. The grass was crisp and well manicured. Rambler roses spread on huge trellises. Giant marigolds nodded in the sun. There was a cherub carved pink fountain spraying cool, cool water into a lily pad pool. I went into the summer house. There, on the floor, lay an open coffin. It wasn't an ordinary coffin. This one was hand-embossed with a scene depicting a unicorn goring a maiden against a tree. I looked into the coffin and saw myself lying inside. The details of the picture blurred and then exploded. I saw that my face on the concrete was lying in a pool of water near the curb where it had run off when the lawn had been sprinkled. A vague feeling that I had forgotten what I had to do brought me stumbling to my feet. I remembered. I had to make a noise, a noise loud enough to wake the whole town. The Black Tom explosion. That was a noise. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, literally B-A dash a dash n dash g exclamation point ba ba bang bang beautiful thank you very much uh yeah saw himself inside of that coffin yeah that, that makes his, sense that the, the his father in law's coffin yeah that's that's about right yeah uh, yeah 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 a little on the nose but it's what you expect <laughs> it's what you hope in a way you're like look please have this Nightmare just to prove that your brain works. Right. Uh, <laughs> just to prove that, like, you're, you are still, like. Human? Human with, like, human emotions. Right. Yeah. Real good. Much appreciated. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Phil's subconscious. Mm. I saw a garbage can standing near a house. I grabbed the cover and rattled it against a picket fence. The din was terrific, but it didn't seem to bother anybody. Not a house light went on, not a window was raised. I started to yell, keeping time with the din of the tin cover. At last, a door flew open, and an angry woman dressed in a flannel nightgown yelled, Go away, you drunkard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Then the door slammed shut. I began to run again. I was racing fast when I met him. He was a Chinese, or a Korean, or something. Oh, God. <laughs> Phil's back, baby. He's back. <laughs> That's the classic Phil racism that we're, hey, we've been uh, missing. With all of this gross, uh, this gross father-son bonding over. The, like intense, like misogyny, yeah. like homicidal. <laughs> We were missing the racism. Yeah, we were in misogyny for too long. We needed to bring back, yeah, the classic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I skidded to a stop and pulled on the lapels of his jacket. I'm Phil Norris, I said. He looked at me, bewildered. I'm Phil Norris, I yelled. 
He didn't seem to understand. I'm Phil Norris. I screamed at this time. The cops are looking for me. I'm a murderer. I killed my wife. <laughs> Is this his new strategy? To just <laughs> yell that he did it so people will be like, oh, this guy definitely didn't do it. Even though he's already the prime suspect. <laughs> no, ironically, he is trying to get caught. But I think <laughs> your strategy is actually better than his strategy. Uh, yeah, I feel like people are just going to be like, mm. like oh, nobody's you can't gonna, be the real Phil Nobody Morris. even wants to arrest him if he's like begging to be arrested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 true. I think it's like a Looney Tunesian, like, oh, I'd like to see you try to arrest me. <laughs> oh, okay. If you want to be arrested, then I won't arrest you. <laughs> That's probably a better call <laughs> in terms of not getting arrested. <laughs> Those were the, that was the law back then. <laughs> I'm a killer. I kill people. I cut them with cuticle cutters. I'm Jack the Ripper. He managed to free himself and scampered down the street as fast as his legs could carry him. I ran after him, but he was too fast. <laughs> Why keep running after him? Just go to another person. I don't know. Like... Yeah, no, he's What's bonkers. What's the scam here? Point. I thought it was a volume business. <laughs> yeah, supposed to get the word people, out. Right? <laughs> he is even incompetent at getting caught. That's where this we're is, at with Phil. This is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him from behind trees, back of bushes. I tiptoed into an alley and listened, thinking he'd betray himself by breathing. But he wasn't there. I'd lost him. I turned a corner in the belief that I had been going in circles. And there, a hundred feet away, was a police station. Yellow lights poured out of its windows. A feeling of deep relief surged into me. I was going to make it. I heard a sound. For a second, I thought it was coming from me. It felt exactly like the pattern of my breathing. Then I realized that it came from overhead. It was weird, weak and strong in turn sometimes like the thin meowing of a cat, and the next minute, a deep, strong yowl. It was a baby crying in a room of the house before which I stood. My head cleared. The baby's wail had acted on me like a shot of insulin acts on a man in a diabetic coma. It had pulled me out of the well. Why did babe crying help him? Baby, uh, yeah, maybe it's just evolutionarily the, those baby cries. They're designed to wake you the fuck up. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe he realized how much of a baby he was. Yeah, I mean, he's still just, a like, baby. Res reset him. Yeah, like... if we could reset him to factory settings, <laughs> that'd be really great. <laughs> Try again. Try again, Phil. I edged back the way I had come, back around the corner, out of sight of the police station. I trembled at the thought of what I'd nearly done. Cutting east, I trotted until I came to Van Ness, then turned into Santa Monica until I came to a high, block-long cement wall that was set back from the street. Oh, okay, so, uh, so I read these a chap. I read these before you. Yes, uh, you read do. this chapter before you. These next two sentences were very poorly copy edited. And so uh, I'm just going to try to give you a sense of what, you know, what I'm going through sometimes with this book. Okay, excellent. Okay. I went, capital T. What? Then I gripped the top and pulled myself up and over. I along it until I was out of the glow of the streetlight. Lowercase d dropped with a gentle thud on the other side inside the cemetery. What? So I think he, he, he went to the cemetery. He's in the cemetery He's now. at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. But those two, that was so poorly copy Santa Monica and Van Ness. I think yeah. even the copy editor at this point oh, was like. Oh, they gave up. They tapped out <laughs> <Yeah>. chapters ago. <laughs> I sat against the wall, right where I fell, for a long time. I stretched my legs out on the soft, trimmed grass and let my chin sink down to my chest. When I felt normal again, I made my way past the tombstones, which were starchy white in the dim light, until I came to a big, sweet olive tree. 
I stooped going under its heavy-leafed branches. No light could reach me there. I took off my shoes and stretched out fully on the ground. Exhausted as I was, I remembered Shelley, wondering what happened to her after I'd run from the ball, worrying about her. She was the last thing I thought about as I curled up on the damp sod. That is chapter 13 of Murder in the Glass Room. The damp sod. The damp sod. (laughs) Yeah, that was the... I feel like all of our faces are deeply planted into the damp sod. sod. Yeah, 100%. Amanda, what you think of this chapter? Woo! (laughs) Kind of had a little bit of everything. It had had everything you need. (laughs) We're all going to need a little bit of time after this. So much was said. Yeah. (laughs) So much was done. So little of it meant anything for Phil. (laughs) None of it helped. More has been taken from him. Yeah. He's learned more information that he doesn't even really know what to do with. Like, he's not even really, there doesn't seem to be any processing of, like, these Big discoveries. Yeah. That add so much depth to the person he thought he knew. Well, I, I've got, I have some good news for you. You do. A, as you know. Actual good news? Well, <laughs> murder in the glass room good news. Okay. So take it with uh, a grain of salt. Mm. Do you remember many, many weeks ago where Phil had what he described as an all-star dream? Yes. Where everybody was <laughs> everyone in it? Everyone was there. Amanda, next time I'm murder in the glass room, Phil's all-star dream comes true. Holy moly. <laughs> We're going to see a full cast. The full, like, it's truly an all-star dream, but real. <laughs> We're going to see a lot of old friends. Um, and yeah, it is going to be, it is Seinfeld-esque uh, chapter. Excellent. That's next time on Dirt Cheap. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. Bye.